and I'm the care team coordinator here at Emmaus Road. And I wanted to take a minute and just talk to you this morning about care team. Um, here at Emmaus, we really like to take the time to provide meals for someone who just had a surgery or maybe lost a loved one um, or do a baby shower for expecting a new child. Um, and I'm really passionate about it because I always think of the verse like, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think that that's um, something that Christ tells us to do because it's an opportunity for us to enter into a community um, and have those relationships. I think so often on Sunday mornings, we have a chance to say, hi, bye, how's your week, hope you're doing well. Um, but taking a meal to someone in their home is really a chance to meet them where they're at um, in their lives and um, really just love on them and get to know them. And so I really love that part of it. So. If you're interested in joining in, I would love that. And on the inside of your bulletin, there's the connection card, and you can just fill that out and indicate if you'd want to be involved. And if you are on my care team list and have had a change in address or uh, email address especially or phone number, if you could update that, that would be great so that we can reach out to you. So um, our reading today is Hebrews 9, 1 through 12. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Great. Thank you, Christina. <clears throat> and I want to say a welcome to all of you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for worship. Uh, I love Baptism Sunday. It's always a great day. Uh, so we thank you for being here. If this is your first time here, we especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, if you'll do us uh, just one favor while you're here, um, if you will take out um, this bulletin and fill out this connection card, which is on the left side, uh, we would love to have a record of you being here. You can drop it in the offering plate as it comes by uh, after this morning's message. Uh, we would love for you to do that. You can fill it out during the message here. Uh, and then the second thing we want to, would, would ask of you is uh, if you visit our information center, which is just right out here or to the side of our sanctuary, we have a book uh, and that's just our gift uh, to you, a way of saying thanks so much for joining us. So uh, that's all we ask of you. We want to just give you some things. If you'll uh, give us uh, the, your information just uh, as a way of saying thanks so much for being here and uh, gives us a record of you being here. Uh, I want to share just a couple of announcements uh, with you. Uh, first of all, we had planned to uh, have a picnic lunch, go to the farm on this bright, sunny day. 
Um, so um, if you brought your picnic lunch, you are a real trooper, um, and I think that you are awesome. But, uh, but anyway, no, we're, we're not going to meet at the farm uh, to have a, a lunch and, and spend the afternoon there. That is canceled. We will wait till the sun decides to show up. Um, and then another change to, we have been promoting a, a family resource event that was a webinar about parenting in a sexualized culture. Uh, what we've learned, though, is that the, the format of the webinar is not going to work in a group setting. Um, and we just learned that this week. So what we want to do is, uh, if you, you'll check your newsletters, and if you are not on the newsletter and would like to be, uh, fill out a connection card and just say, hey, add me to the newsletter. Uh, we are going to send out a link that will, and I think the link is also in your bulletin today, uh, but we're going to send you a link to sign up so that you can attend that webinar uh, just on your own. But we just weren't able to host it in a group setting uh, like we anticipated or wanted to be able to do. So we still want to make that available to you, but you can uh, do it uh, in your own uh, homes and living rooms, and uh, we encourage you to do that. In fact, if you do that, it's available not only uh, on the 26th in the evening, it's also available a couple of days earlier in the morning. So if the morning time frame works a little better for you, uh, they are offering the live webinar at two different time slots. And, and both those time slots will be available in the link that we send out and also the link uh, here. So, um, so we wanted to update you on that. And then we wanted to let you know that uh, as we have been talking about our eKids play area that we're wanting to make happen this uh, summer, we, we went ahead, we raised over $10,000 to make it happen. So again, I want to say thank you so much for your generosity. Uh, but there are still more ways to help. And one of the ways to help... Uh, is uh, elbow grease, effort, uh, work. We're going to do a lot of it DIY style. And so uh, we're going to have a work day this coming Saturday, weather permitting. Um, So this coming Saturday, April 23rd, uh, we'll be gathering. And uh, we need about four to six folks. We're going to be running some equipment, uh, digging some areas out where we're going to be putting a flagstone patio. We're going to be putting several inches of mulch for safety for our kids in in one of the areas. So we are going to be running equipment. uh, But if you just want to come and offer a helping hand, we would love to have you. It starts at 9 a.m. We're thinking we could be done around 2 p.m., something like that. Um, But we hope that you'll join us uh, for that. So uh, there also are some upcoming work days as well uh, that we'll be letting you know about. But that's the first one to get us off to a great start in making the the play area happen. So uh, we just simply cannot do it without everybody uh, playing a part, whether that is supporting us in prayer, uh, offering your help. Those of you who gave financially, uh, it is a community effort to make this happen. And uh, I appreciate you, uh, each one of you, uh, so, so very much in helping us to, to do this. So. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Let's say a word of prayer before we jump into this morning's message. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of new life um, and all that you have given to us, the initiative of love and grace and mercy uh, that you have taken and poured out in our lives. And God, thank you today for those that have taken the step of baptism uh, and just wanting to illustrate and to demonstrate, God, their, their new life in you. And so, Heavenly Father, today, now, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our minds and hearts for understanding, for application, um, and that you, Lord, would um, speak to us, uh, transform us, and shape us as we open your Word together. God, we love you, we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the last uh, week in a series that we have called The Cross. Uh, We've been looking uh, over this Easter season 
because Easter is not just a single Sunday in the church calendar, but Easter is a, a 50-day uh, season uh, of celebration of new life in Christ and resurrection. Uh, and uh, this Easter, we've been doing a series called The Cross, which might seem a little bit curious uh, because Easter is all about resurrection. Uh, and you're right. Uh, Easter is all about uh, new life through resurrection. But we've been turning our attention to the cross uh, because Jesus' work on the cross uh, and his resurrection cannot be separated. Uh, they are absolutely tied together. Uh, you, you cannot have resurrection if you don't have the cross first. And yet all that Jesus accomplished on the cross is, is affirmed, solidified, made real and true at the resurrection. Uh, if if Jesus' work on the cross without a resurrection is just a guy who died. Uh, but if you have the Son of God who who dies on a tree but then is raised to life, uh, then all of a sudden you have an absolutely world-shaking event that has absolutely changed the course of history. Uh, and so we've been looking at the cross, and we've been learning some things that I think are probably uh, some new ideas compared to what you uh, have heard about the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement is, the, is a fancy theological word meant to simply describe what was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross. Um, and, and so I want to begin this, this last week of the cross um, with just some personal reflection. And we're going to look at Hebrews 9. Uh, but, but I want to just kind of let you hear uh, my heart for a little bit. As a pastor, um, I have the privilege of, of studying theology uh, on a regular basis. Now, to some of you, that might sound like a barrel of fish hooks, uh, but for me, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's, it's one of the parts of the job that I absolutely love the most and really enjoy. I love being a student of theology. Uh, I love uh, being able to communicate uh, some of those thoughts, truths, ideas uh, to all of you in a setting like this. Uh, but as a student of theology, um, I, I want to make sure uh, that I'm not that I'm not becoming stale. Uh, in other words, uh, I want to make sure that my my thoughts, my perspective, my knowledge uh, are always are always growing, um, not only in in breadth but depth as well. Um, now, some of you might get pretty nervous about the idea of, of theological ideas sort of changing or shifting over time. Uh, but, but really, I, I feel like that as, a, as a pastor and as a student of theology, uh, I don't want to be thinking about things the same way today as I did 10 years ago. I want to make sure that my understanding is growing. Well, several years ago, I read a book uh, called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Um, and, and that book, if any of you have read it, you'll know that it is, uh, is an earth-shattering book. Um, it will mess you up for years and years. Uh, in the best sort of way. Um, but this book began to articulate things that I sort of felt in my heart and in my spirit, but never knew how to articulate. Uh, and, and so if you were to look at my copy of Surprised by Hope, there are more things not highlighted than are highlighted. <laughs> it's one of those books where it's just like, yes, the whole thing, you know? Uh, well, this book began a theological journey, short, sort of a, a shift in me, uh, that really changed the way I think about the resurrection and I think about the future that God has intended for his people. Uh, the subtitle of the book, Surprised by Hope, is called Rethinking uh, Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Uh, and it absolutely shaped and changed the way that I thought about all of those things. 
Uh, in, in fact, um, my brother, I just, my brother is also a pastor, and uh, I just, uh, I said, you know, you've got to read Surprised by Hope. And so he was reading it, and just previous to this Easter, just a few weeks ago, uh, he just finished it. And he called me on the phone, and he said, you know what, you just can't preach Easter the same after you read this book. And I said, yeah, tell me about it. Um, I've been preaching Easter differently for a number of years ever since I read this. In fact, uh, I, I just want to let you know, I, I want to take us down his, uh, uh, memory lane here, give us a little bit of history. Uh, in 2013, uh, for our Easter series, we did this series called Coming to Grips. Uh, it was a series about how Christians should approach and handle death. Uh, so for Easter, we did a series on death. That was not one of my best ideas, but, um, but, but we did it. Uh, and, and it was a series in which I, I really attempted to teach uh, on the hope that we have uh, because of the resurrection. So we probably should have named it a little bit differently, done some different things. But uh, the, the real heart of it was the resurrection brings us incredible hope in the face of death. Uh, the next year, in 2014, we did a series called Resurrection Realities, uh, which, which explored all the implications of resurrection. Uh, the next year, which was, which was last year, uh, we essentially did the same series. We just called it something different. Aha, uh-huh, I didn't know that, did you? Um, and I promise we'll never do that again. Um, but last year, we did a series called The Meaning of Easter. Uh, in this series, I tried to show how resurrection makes a difference every day in our lives. That resurrection isn't just sort of a, a neat little trick that God pulled off on Easter, uh, but, but actually it, it shapes and forms uh, our life. And you're like, well, what is all this personal reflection stuff about? Well, what I'm trying to say to you is that several years ago, in thinking about the resurrection, there was a shift in my theology. Uh, there was a growth in how I began to think about what happened on that very first Easter. And that has had implications for us as a community as we've walked through Easter over the course of the last several years. Um, when we come to the cross... This represents, the ideas that I've been preaching about in this series represents a similar kind of shift. Uh, That I have have been transitioning theologically in how I think about what happened on the cross uh, of Jesus Christ. Because a few months ago, I came across some new ways of looking at Jesus' death. Um, And that, again, has had an impact on how I think about the gospel and how I think about the character of God. And, and what I want to say to you is that all of this learning that I've, been, um, that I've been doing over the course of the last several years has made Jesus and the gospel not only more compelling, but far more beautiful as well. Uh, that I hope that what I have presented to you in these ideas uh, during this series, The Cross, have, have allowed you, have, have spurred you on to fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel. Um, Because I I grew up, like many of you have, if you grew up in church, uh, you you probably were were taught sort of the one view of what the cross meant. And and I was taught that the cross meant, the, the, the cross was where God killed Jesus so that the debt that I had run up with God because of sin was paid off. But Jesus was, of course, quite loving to do this for me. Uh, but God always seemed really mean to require that, that Jesus would die in order to satisfy his wrath. 
And, and so I sort of grew up with this picture of God that was always pitting God the Father against God the Son. Um, and then we have this, this uh, tradition, the, the Nazarene tradition, where we emphasize life in the Spirit. And so I was just really confused about how all, all of this really worked. You have God the Father, who seems kind of mean because he had to kill his son. You have the very loving uh, son, Jesus Christ, who died for me in my place to take my punishment instead of, uh, you know, instead of God pouring out his wrath on me. And then, and then where does the Holy Spirit fit in all of that? And what I have tried to do uh, in this series um, is I've tried to present truths that I hope have helped you in the same way that they have helped me. Uh, because the, the shift in my theology has been that God is a loving father who sends his son to rescue us from our sinful condition. That the cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just deal with our sins, the individual actions, sinful actions that we have participated in, but that the cross of Jesus Christ has something to say about our sin the condition of sin in which we live. And, and so the cross is not so limited to just dealing with sort of God churning a blind eye to our acts of sin, but, but rather God uh, really has an intention to deal with out of love our sinful condition. He wants to rescue us out of our sinful condition. I've also tried to say in this series that God in Christ becomes the God of the God forsaken by suffering with us. Sometimes when we think about God, is, when we say God is in control, and when we think about God's sovereignty, what we, the way in which we think about it is, is, is really just um, that, that God is, is sort of over, outside, above, or aloof to our situation. God is in control. He's, he's puppeteering the whole thing, uh, and, and, he, and he's not really affected by our circumstances, or our suffering. But what I have tried to say, and what has helped me immensely, is that on the cross, as Jesus Christ dies, God becomes the God of those who are God-forsaken by suffering with us. That God is intimately not only affected, but suffering with you when you suffer. When your heart breaks, God's heart breaks also. When you shed tears, God joins you in your tears and he sheds them in concert with yours. That God is so with us. God is so entered into solidarity with us that he suffers with us. And so God becomes the God of the God forsaken. But it isn't just that. God also becomes the God of the godless. That is that God deals with our sin, the godless part of us. But God becomes the God of the godless by suffering for us. And so God suffers with us. God suffers for us. God sends his son out of love to rescue us from our sinful condition. And, and this, I submit to you, is, is maybe a transition in what you have heard about in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, because I had, only, I had grown up with one single view. And the single view was, God is really mad at sin. And in order to satisfy his wrath, he has to kill his son. So now you should give your life to him because he loves you. Um, and if you are sort of natural, if you have a natural inclination toward faith, or if you have grown up indoctrinated into that faith, then this all makes a lot of sense. But there is a whole swath of our culture that says, you got to be nuts. Uh, and so we need to, we need to, um, 
we need to think, rethink our theology of the cross. And over the course of the last three weeks, um, I, I hope, number one, that you do not see me as a theological heretic. <laughs> uh, but I hope, that you, I hope that you would trust that I don't bring anything to this platform that, that has not been thoroughly, thoroughly thought through and prayed about. Um, But what I I believe that the ideas and the truths that I have shared in this series present to us um, a more robust gospel, a more hopeful gospel, and and give us a theology of what happened on the cross uh, that stands uh, in line with our claims that God is loving, uh, that he is nothing but love, and that does not pit the Father against the Son. Um, and so as I have already said, uh, but I want to say to you again, I am convinced that the gospel is far more beautiful than we have commonly understood. Uh, that the gospel is far more profound than we have commonly understood. Uh, and so I want to close this series. Uh, each, each, uh, so, so let me back up. Each week we've sort of been addressing a question. Uh, And I want to close the series by addressing the question, how is it that Jesus Christ can enter into solidarity with all humanity? One of the key parts is that that Jesus Christ took the initiative in our lives. He is the one who entered into solidarity with us. He took on our sin. He absorbed our sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he became sin for us. He's entering into radical solidarity with humanity. And then through baptism, entered into by faith, we also enter into solidarity with Christ. We join him in his death and resurrection so that we might be rescued from our sin. Uh, our, our sinful condition, which does not mean that we'll never sin again. Don't hear me miscorrectly. Being rescued from uh, the chain or the mastery of sin does not mean that we'll just go on and live sinless the rest of our life. Um, the first time, you know, if someone stands up and testifies and said, I haven't sinned in 15 years, well, you just did because you're not being very humble there. So, um, so it's like, ah, until now. Um, so we're not, saying, we're not saying that Jesus Christ makes it possible for you to live perfectly. What we're saying is that Jesus Christ allows you to live victoriously and righteously before God. That's what we're saying. Uh, And today I want to sort of address the question of, yes, but how is all of this possible? If all of this hinges on Jesus Christ entering into solidarity with us, how in the world is it possible? And Christina did a great job reading. um, And I want to just pick up where she left off by reading uh, sort of the punch to the whole thing, right? Uh, Christina read uh, all about the tabernacle and the holy place, the most holy place, lampstand, consecrated bread, all of this. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. What's the point? Here's the point. Verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read just a couple verses uh, to pick up where she left off. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of the creation. For he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining For us, eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Now, in order to understand this passage from Hebrews 9 that sort of 
crescendos to the point where Christ is our high priest, we have to understand what in the world is a high priest and what in the world did they do. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to be a male from the priestly tribe, the Levites. They had to be holy in conduct. That means they had to act righteously all the time. And they had to be free of physical defects. Now, there's, uh, so just on the, on the baseline, you had to be from the right family or you would never had a hope of being a high priest. Uh, you had to be free of any physical defects, so you had to look good. And then you had to be holy in conduct. Now, but that wasn't just like sort of this general, okay, be holy. There were all sorts of regulations on what this person could or could not do as high priest. Among them, this person, he was not allowed to show traditional signs of grief when loved ones died. So if anyone in his family or close to him passed away, this high priest was not allowed to show traditional signs of grief or mourning. Now, traditional signs in this culture would have been to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes, but they were not allowed to do that. They were the high priest. To do that would make them unclean. They were also, they also had to marry a virgin girl from their own tribe. There was no one else that they could do that. And there were extensive requirements for how they were to dress to dress, particularly as they were fulfilling their role as the high priest. Detail after detail after detail after detail of what their garments looked like and the material that they were made of. So that's sort of the person of the high priest. Now the function of the high priest was this. Once a year, he would enter into the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Then he would sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice on what was called the mercy seat. And this act would atone or forgive not only his own sin, but also the sin of the entire community, the sin of the people. And so the high priest goes in as a representative before God, not only of himself, but also of the community of people. And what Hebrews 9 then describes are what all of these liturgies of worship are inside of the tabernacle. And we have to ask the question, uh, why is the preacher in the New Testament, to the, the preacher to the Hebrews, why is he talking about this? And I always laugh when it says, I don't remember what verse, but he's like, but we don't have time to go into all the detail right now, to which I think, too late. Right? Um, <laughs> and so, but he's so like, you got to ask, what in the world is his motivation? What is he doing? And why is he giving us all of this, in fact, detail about the Old Testament tabernacle and what are these things for? Well, the, the bottom line is this the tabernacle itself and all the forms or expressions of worship in the tabernacle represent the human response to God. So let me unpack that a little bit. When God sets up the covenant law, he knew that we could not keep it. He set up a covenant law with the nation of Israel. He says, be holy because I am holy, and here's what it means to be holy, and here's these ten kind of main laws, but then here's all these other laws, and laws upon laws upon laws. If you want to read about them, you can in the book of Leviticus. It makes great nighttime devotional reading. Um, and so you have all of these laws, and, and they are all God-given, God-established, and God says, now go and do these things. And the people say, yeah, we're going to do it, and then they don't. Um, and so he says, uh, you know, but God knew, God knew that they couldn't live out these things perfectly, but, but uh, the law was in fact a gift. And we've kind of been tackling this a little bit in our series on Galatians, which we're going to pick up next week. Uh, but the law not only sort of said, here's what is sinful uh, if you do or don't do, but the law also revealed the sinful hearts of the people. Uh, it, it revealed not only their sin, but their sinful condition. 
Now remember, we've been talking about that. The cross of Jesus Christ addressed not only our sinful actions, but our sinful condition. The law revealed not only what sinful actions were, but it also revealed the people's sinful condition. But with the tabernacle and the most holy place, the lampstand, the consecrated bread, all these forms of worship, uh, they they go along with all of these things so that the people of Israel could remain in covenant with God. Because guess what? You know what a covenant says? A covenant says, here's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, then we're not in covenant anymore. If you break the covenant, then you are cursed instead of blessed. And so the covenant was made up of all these laws. When the people didn't do it, outside of God's grace, they would have broken covenant and been outside of covenant. But the forms of worship, the role of the high priest allow them to remain in covenant with God. They worship in these ways. They participate in the, in the forms of worship that the tabernacle represents. And then all of a sudden it represents, remember, their human response to God. Their human response to God through these acts of worship allow them to stay in covenant with a holy God. Does that make sense? Sort of. Make sense? Yes, I'm hoping so. I'm going to keep going. So left to our sin and our inability to obey, we would be forever separated from God. But God in his grace provides a sanctuary and elements of worship that, when performed, provide a covenant response to God or a way for the people of Israel to remain in covenant with a holy God. So you get the picture. Here's the law. Live by it perfectly, you remain in covenant. Oh, wait. You can't do that. So now, as an expression of my love and my grace and my mercy toward you, I'm going to give you forms of worship and priestly roles that will allow you to stay in covenant with me if you do these things. So those things, those acts of worship, represent the faithful human response to God. Are we clear, hopefully? Good. Okay. Now, The high priest then has a twofold ministry, and this is critical to understand. The high priest has a twofold ministry. On behalf of God, the high priest faces humanity and offers to them God's presence and God's forgiveness. Remember, the high priest represents not only himself, but he represents the whole community. And so, on behalf of God, this this one man represents. God to the whole community. God's presence, God's forgiveness. Now, you might, this might sound like really odd, but actually we do this today. Uh, in weddings, you make a vow to one another, but in a Christian wedding, you also make a covenant before God. And so the, when you, but you do that facing the pastor. And so it sounds a lot like a vow, but it's actually a covenant to God. And you do that facing the pastor as the pastor stands in sort of the representative presence of God. But you didn't know that. And so in a, in a traditional wedding, Christian wedding, you would make not only your vows to one another in which you face one another, but you also make your vow to God, uh, which is the, the husband and the wife uh, make vows to God facing the pastor. And so the high priest, on behalf of God, faces toward the community, offering them God's presence and forgiveness. Another way to say that is the high priest represents God's loving hand 
reaching down to humanity. The high priest represents God's loving hand reaching down to humanity. Now, but the high priest has a twofold ministry. So on behalf of the people, now representing the people, the high priest faces toward God and presents the offerings of worship, which remember the offerings of worship are themselves their, co- their faithful covenant response to God. So here, God, we can't act perfectly, but in your love you have given us these forms of worship, and so they represent our, our faithful response to you, so we offer them up to you, but we do it through the high priest who represents the whole of us. And so the high priest not only represents God's loving hand uh, down to humanity, but the high priest, and this is what we often don't understand, the high priest also represents man's hand reaching up to God. And so the high priest literally, or we could say metaphorically, is standing like this. He's representing both God to man and man to God. That's the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. What the author of Hebrews does is he says, particularly in chapter 9, but throughout this entire book, he uses this picture of the Old Testament high priest to talk about what Christ has done for us. And so he's talking about all these forms of worship and all this Old Testament stuff and lampstands and consecrated bread and holy place and most holy place and all of that, but it all leads to this crescendo that, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are to come. In other words, he represents the final high priest. And so throughout this series, again, we've been talking, we've talked about how Christ enters into solidarity with all of humanity. How is he qualified to do this or how can he do this? And the answer is in Hebrews chapter nine, Jesus Christ can represent all of humanity to God and God to all of humanity because he is in fact our high priest. Are you with me? This friends is good news that Jesus Christ stands in the gap. Now, you've normally heard that term, stand in the gap, as a way of saying there's sort of the wrath of God coming down and Jesus is a shield against you uh, or for you, right? But this is not the way in which I'm I'm using the term Jesus Christ stands in the gap. When I say that Jesus Christ stands in the gap, what I mean is that Jesus is our perfect and faithful high priest. So when we look at the cross, we need to see God's loving hand of forgiveness reaching down to us. And that's always typically how it's framed. Almost always the way you hear the cross talked about is God's loving hand reaching down to humanity, God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, all of these things. And the answer is yes, that is true. But there is a side that we are missing if that's the only way we understand the cross. We must also begin to understand the cross to see that it is Christ's obedient hand representing humanity reaching also up to God. It isn't just a one-sided thing. There are two ministries of the high priest. Yes, he's reaching down, but Christ represents all of us, and he reaches up his faithful hand to God. And so Christ stands as God's representative to all of humanity, but Christ stands as all of humanity's representative 
to God. And listen, he can only do this because he is fully God and fully human. You take one of those things away, you emphasize one over the other, and the whole thing falls apart. But you've got, to, you've got to understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is fully God. He is the pre-existent Word, the, 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 the eternal Word of God made flesh. He is fully God. But he enters into full solidarity with humanity. Fully human. Fully God. Fully human. And then, operating then as our high priest, he is in a position where he can represent the loving hand of God reaching down to humanity, but also represent humanity's hand reaching up to God. But not in unfaithfulness, because Christ lived perfectly, he reaches up in faithfulness. This, my friends, is good news. And so in becoming our high priest, he is perfectly suited to enter into complete solidarity with us, as we have been talking about throughout this series. But again, there is more. There's always more, right? There's always one more thing. Again, all of the things listed in Hebrews that are part of the Old Testament forms of worship or all of the, the liturgy of worship, uh, the lampstand, all of these things uh, that were put in place by God themselves, number one, we've already learned, are the covenant response of the people to God so that despite their unfaithfulness, they can remain in covenant with God. But guess what? All those forms of worship point to and create a shadow or foreshadow Christ. They foreshadow Christ. You have a lampstand in the, in the ho- most holy place that provides light. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You have the consecrated bread, but Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You see, the tabernacle itself was done away with because God tabernacles in us through the spirit of Jesus Christ. See, all of these forms of worship are pointing in a particular direction and they're pointing to their fulfillment. And their fulfillment is in Jesus Christ, the true, authentic, eternal, high priest. But again, remember that all of these things made possible the people's covenant response to God so that despite their unfaithfulness, they could live in covenant and remain in covenant with God. But Christ fulfills all of these things. He becomes the true lampstand, the true bread, the true tabernacle, which means this, church, that as Christ stands before God, he is, in fact, the faithful human response to God. Jesus Christ himself is the faithful response to God. And so God in his love and in his mercy has responded to himself in Jesus Christ. All we must do then is respond in faith or place our faith, place our trust in Jesus. Because let me put it this way. I can see some of you are going, "Mm," like your brain hurts. Mine does too. Um, But here, let me put it this way. A lot of times when we talk about, when we talk about Jesus, we, we just talk about Jesus protecting us or acting as a shield against the wrath of God, that God's wrath would pour out on you if it weren't for Jesus and your trust in him. Let's flip that totally on its head 
And let's say that when you place your faith in Jesus, he is representing for you your obedient response to God. So it's, not, it's, it's now the motivation is not sort of protection from wrath or anger, but now the motivation is a response of love to God. So we, when Paul says it is a righteousness that is not our own, well, does he, what does he mean by that? What he means is when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he represents us before God as one who is faithful. Think of it this way. We get to share in the righteousness of Christ because we place our trust in him and he's representing all of humanity before God. Now, does that mean that all people will be saved? Not if they don't place their trust in Jesus. But Jesus has faithfully represented the whole of humanity before God. And when we place our trust in him, we get to share in his righteousness. That's what Paul means when he says it's, not a, it's a righteousness that isn't our own. It's, it's a sharing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our role is to place our faith in the work of Jesus. And so once again, we return to the idea that we came across in Galatians. That our faith is rooted in the faithfulness of Christ. That when we place our faith in Christ, what we are doing is trusting in the faithful work of Christ on our behalf. And so Christ has faithfully become our high priest. So we place our trust in his faithfulness. And by doing so, we are called righteous and we are also empowered for righteousness. We have, we have made our faith way too individualized. It is, it is a placing our faith in the, the corporate uh, representative Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. We then share in his faithfulness through Christ. We then share in the faithfulness of Christ. The real trick of living righteously, right? The real trick of life change is, is learning how to place our full trust in Jesus and what has already been accomplished. Like if we can share in all the faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be ruled by sin, should we? Which is, I guess, what, precisely what the Apostle Paul says. Don't, then don't be ruled by sin. Don't offer your instruments uh, to, to wickedness, but rather offer your instruments, that is your, your body, your mouth, your arms and legs, offer them for righteousness because you've been rescued from it. And so uh, the, the good news is better than we have ever imagined. What I want to leave you with today, because I know this is like drinking from a fire hose, right? And so if you catch one thing today, here's what I want you to catch. When you think about the cross, don't just see the loving hand of Jesus, of God, reaching down through Jesus. But begin to also see that in Jesus Christ, he represents you before God. That the hand of the faithful, obedient hand of Jesus is reaching up to God on your behalf. And your response to such love is faith and trust in Him. That's what I want you to take. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.